Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, and welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. Today, I'm super excited because we are joined by Ben Lamb, CEO of Colossal and so much more. Ben, welcome. Thanks, Allie, for having me. Yeah. So a little bit about Colossal. We know it's spun out of George Church's lab. We've had George, I think, twice on the podcast. A man who maybe needs little introduction, but maybe we'll give him a small one anyway. George Church's lab is in Harvard. And this essentially is a startup that started, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, to bring the woolly mammoth back from extinction. So we'll go into all things woolly mammoth, de-extinction. But first, let's just talk about some of your other projects. You've been involved in various innovative projects throughout your career, not all related to sort of the biotech sphere. So we'd love to kind of talk about your tech career and then just what initially sparked your interest in entrepreneurship and technology. Yeah. So this is my first biotech ever. I don't have a background in biology. My background is in finance and accounting. And then I've always been passionate about starting businesses. And I've always just been massively curious. And it's funny, my massive curiosity kind of led me to the mammoth. But I'm sure we could talk about that at some point. And my background is I've always just been fascinated with the interaction of humanity with like the next technology. So I actually started off in the e-learning field. I was I built a small e-learning business in college. I actually grew it to be the fourth largest e-learning company in the United States. And then it got acquired. And I learned a lot about the process of raising capital, board dynamics, control provisions. You learn a lot, I, I think, trial by fire at least. And then I went on to get into the mobile app game for a while built a company called Chaotic Moon, which was the largest mobile app developer in the US. Uh, we had this pretty cool core platform that all the major streamers, or now they're the streamers at the time, they were just all the video on demand people like Hulu and Disney and Netflix and everyone were using kind of our platform. After Accenture bought that, I used that foray to go into gaming. I, I got really passionate about more and more on the automation and AI side. So we built a pretty cool little gaming company that made a series of shitty games and then it made its like eighth game called dragon academy which actually worked which was kind of cool and then zynga ended up acquiring it and then i just thought where were other areas that we could apply ai so i got in the conversational intelligence space and we built one of the first conversational intelligence platforms to kind of understand intent recognition and apply that to different business use cases kind of like for call center automation Interestingly enough, we like to joke that we miss large language models by like 10 years and $40 billion, or I guess now soon to be $7 trillion. But it was a definitely an interesting learning experience. And then that weird journey took me into satellite software and defense. So that was my next company. 
And then that weird world somehow ended, you know, I, I got on George Church's doorstep and I was just weirdly, massively excited about synthetic biology and what was possible. I mean, this is something that you know so much more about than, than, than I do, but I was just so fascinated with what the possibilities of automation, AI, and software could be in biology and specifically in reading and writing genomes. And so I reached out to George to think that post Hypergiant, I'd go build a synthetic biology software platform in a weird way, I got to kind of do that. But in that process, I asked George, just because I'm weird and curious, if you had one project that you had unlimited capital for, out of everything that you, George Church, have ever done or want to do, what would it be? Are you going to try to make humans live underwater? Are you going to try to build a Saturn-based colony? What would you do? And he said he wanted to bring back the woolly mammoth to reintroduce it back into the Arctic, as well as build technologies to save critically endangered species. And I was like, wow, that's beyond incredible. And I, I was pretty much in love from that like one sentence. What's interesting is you mentioned your interest in AI and automation and SaaS software and even gaming, I think. And I think so many of those things actually translate and can help with Colossal and with bringing back the woolly mammoth and other de-extinction projects. So even just relating that to our own research at ARC, I think about the fact that we look at AI CRISPR, which you use as well, and sequencing, which you do too. And we think about how that can like boost the efficiency of clinical trials. It can shorten development timelines. It can reduce failure rates. And then of course, and somewhat importantly, it can also increase your return on investment. So I just think it's really interesting that it feels like a lot of your sort of beginning and where you started is really important and has so much value in what you're doing now. So I'm just kind of curious of how do you see these technologies helping and what do they help you with? Like, do they help you with failure rates, which we see in biotech all the time? Do they help you with creating quicker timelines than we thought were achievable? Like, what do you see as, as sort of the main drivers that these technologies can help with and sort of the stuff you brought from the beginning of your career? I've never known exactly what I was going to do next. Like, I, you know, I knew nothing about DoD or satellites before I started Hypergiant. <laughs> Definitely knew nothing about mammoths or biology before I started Colossal with George. But I'd say that it's really helped two ways. One is more of a soft skill way where we do not run Colossal like a traditional biotech, as I've learned from hiring a lot of biotech executives and incredible PhDs. It's ran more like a software company. So we actually have species leads that actually drive the individual species that they're running. And we have cross-supporting functions, kind of like UAT testing or whatnot in software, we have that for like cellular engineering or embryology. So we have this like matrix organization that really runs. And if you look at it and you take out like mammoths and dodos and thylacines, it looks like a software company. You, you could plug in different humans and skill sets and you'd be building different product lines for a software. So interestingly enough, the structure of the organization feels a lot more like a software company in terms of, or at least a product company in terms of how we think about staffing and running projects. Like I like to joke that stem cell reprogramming is not our hardest challenge here. It's actually reprogramming biologists to work in like JIRA and, you know, Kanpa and these different systems. So we are, re we really, we track scientific milestones in quarter over quarter systems. So it really does run in a sprint and scrum-like fashion, which is very strange and interesting, at least we're, we're learning. And then from a technology perspective, we would not be able to do what we are doing today 
without some of those core software. And, and we've actually had to go out and invent software for us uh, to, to build, some of which have applications to human healthcare, which we're spinning out and monetizing. But everything from, yeah, I think you nailed it with failure rates and everything from guide designs to failure rates, to planning experiments, to the sequencing and, and to genetic assembly, right? Because like in a weird way, colossal, when people think de-extinction, they just think you go get this like magical DNA from like amber, like they saw in Jurassic Park, and then you just clone it and you cross your fingers and you've got an animal, right? And as you know, it's, it's a very much more nuanced process where the ancient DNA that we get is so fragmented and so destroyed and has barely survived the test of time. You know, we've had to use over 65 genomes of various mammoths to just assemble the majority of a reference genome for just the mammoth. And then we've got to use comparative genomics. And this is where software and automation plays a huge role, where we've actually go through and do the comparison to the reference genomes that we also have to build because no one told me before I started this, there wasn't like the Google cloud of all T to T reference genomes. I just thought that we'd backed all life up on earth, but apparently that's not been done yet no. um, <laughs> at, at all. Well, and it's not, especially it's not even annotated. So then you've got to like truly understand it once you back it up. And so using software and automation has really helped us to do that assembly on the ancient DNA do the comparative genomics. And we've even built systems, you know, and they're not perfect yet. I'd say that we probably have a 25 to 30% accuracy on our guide designs, but we basically automated the process of trying to design the, what is the best tool for the job? And also what is the best efficiency that we hope to get? And so sometimes when we're working on these ancient DNA and the extinction projects, everybody just thinks of like, CRISPR as a catch-all in terms of like those knockouts, but that's, as you know, only one tool. We're doing single nucleotide editing, so we're doing base editing and changing individual letters in some cases. We're doing full uh, DNA synthesis and protein engineering, where we're swapping out large cargos so that we don't have to make like 20 edits in one kind of gene and one protein coding region, so that we don't have uh, a lot of adding a lot of cell toxicity and instability to the cell. So that process of just choosing the right tool can be labor intensive. And then if you use the wrong tool, then you kind of have to rinse and repeat the same experiment or editing, especially as you start to stack edits and try to get more and more edits into a, a living cell. And so we've actually built a tool and I would say probably a third of the guides that come out of the tool work better than it hoped and get us the efficiency that we're hoping for. And two thirds of them still aren't, but that's still better than starting from scratch. So we are constantly improving our software capabilities and algorithms internally. And we've created these interesting feedback loops so that when different guides and different editing modalities work, we try to feed that back in the system. So we just get better and better efficiency on the editing, right? So then we don't have so many unintended consequences that come from the editing. And, and so without automation and AI, we wouldn't be able to bring species back in you know, years. It would take us decades with probably 5x the human power that we are currently leveraging. One thing that I, I love about you, Ben, and the team is that I think you guys are so good at the AI and software piece that you're creating value within the company within different tools that you're creating. So I'm sure there are so many things I don't know about, but I was lucky enough to meet Kent with you, who's the CEO of Form Bio which is a tool that is pretty interesting. So 
it's an AI tool for cell and gene therapy. And maybe I'll, I'll let you explain it because you probably know it a lot better than I do. But I think it's just really interesting that you're even creating value in the tools that you guys were like, hey, we need this. But wait, if we need it, probably other people need it too. And how can we capitalize both by using it within our own company and then to offering out, I think you guys do maybe licenses, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Yeah, and that whole space is just super interesting, right? So like Forum Bio came out of Colossal and part of our business plan with Colossal is as we develop technologies that have an application to conservation, we're actually giving those to the world for free. But as we are developing innovations that have an application to human healthcare, we are monetizing them. And so we actually built Forum Bio because we looked at a lot of different software tools out there and nothing really allowed the bridging of our computational biology cores with our bench scientists, right? It was It's historically been a very handoff process where then data gets back in the hands of the scientists and they don't, sometimes they don't even know how to interpret it, right? And so that's how it works in a lot of these big academic labs and other research organizations. So our goal was how do we build the right user interfaces and how do we leverage some of the tools like machine learning and AI and automation where applicable so that we can one, learn and make these tools better for the bench scientists, but then eventually bridge the gap so that the scientists are more empowered to get data from their experiments in near real time. So that was kind of like this idea that we developed to kind of like speed up the process. What we realized though, was that there was a huge need for this for everything from cancer research to different gene therapy and other designs. So we spun out FormBio, which you know was a great opportunity for all of our shareholders, just mirrored the cap table. We raised at $35 million to get the company started. They are now kind of our partner on all of our comp bio work. And what we found after going out to academic labs and big biotechs is that there were specific areas, like some of the different gene therapies that come from like adenoviruses and others that people could, that they needed help really kind of refining the process. And so we found that through AI and automation, we could actually make drug development before we even get into discovery, more efficient for certain types of gene therapies. So that gave us an opportunity to get into working with a lot of these incredible biotech companies in helping them not just lower their cost and increase their efficiency, but also get drugs to market faster to help humans, which has kind of been our core ethos. So we thought that was interesting. And so that's, to your point, Ali, that's where FormBio has been focused. But now we are starting to have some of these biotechs come to us and saying, hey, in addition to us leveraging your software, could we do joint ventures around individual therapy uh, design and could we help even incubate some drugs? So that's in the very early stages of the business, but some of the biotechs that we're working with are seeing so much positive feedback from leveraging the form biosystem that now they're even looking to JV on, in addition to paying us for the software on some of these different drug designs. So it's such a cool area and all of that came from this entire awesome business for bio came out of the need for us to shorten the gap between our bench scientists and computational cores at Colossal on what we were finding with our ancient DNA. That's awesome. And I realized that we have not even talked about what is de-extinction. <laughs> How do you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, or woolly mammoths or, yeah. It's good. We went straight to the nerding out. So I think that means we're enjoying it at least. But maybe just to circle back, maybe we can just talk about what is de-extinction. And, you know, you talked about and many times on this podcast, I've talked about gene editing and, and you mentioned some of the newer modalities like base editing and prime editing. But 
How are you using gene editing to combat de-extinction? I think that's a super interesting question that we should probably get to. <laughs> yeah, so we should, Colossal being a de-extinction company, or I guess currently the only de-extinction company, we should probably <laughs> define that. So maybe I'll start there and then we can talk about the genetic engineering side of it. But ultimately, when people think of Jurassic Park and all these different movies, when they think about de-extinction, and then you go look at like, how does Wikipedia and the world define de-extinction? They basically define it as, you know, generating an organism that either resembles or is an extinct species. We don't think that's a really great definition because you can't currently make an exact copy of an extinct species and you can't currently clone from dead cells. So that's kind of off the table. And generating something that just kind of looks like an extinct species, like if you make a hairy elephant, but it's not cold tolerant and it can't survive in the Arctic, have you really made a mammoth or have you just made a hairy elephant? So we try to think about, and this I think applies directly to your question around genome engineering, is we think about de-extinction more about rebuilding extinct species for survival today. And we think it's a combination of de-extincting the core genes that drove the phenotypes or physical attributes and characteristics we're looking for. So in the case of the mammoth, that's like the small ears, the curved tusks, the dome cranium, but also some of the cold tolerant features like the extra subcutaneous fat layers, the long shaggy coat of hair, which actually five different hairs. That's a fun mammoth fact for people that want mammoth facts. And even stuff that I call quote unquote under the hood, right? So how does this particular mammal process in uh, hemoglobin at sub-freezing temperatures, right? Like we can't really breathe, our blood crystallizes at negative 40, where mammoths and caribou and polar bears and others uh, have and do exist, as well as how do we also engineer in enhancements? Could we make the mammoth more cold tolerant? Could we make it less cold tolerant for in, in warmer temperatures? And also engineering resilience. So for example, there's a terrible uh, herpes virus that kills called EEHV, it kills about 20% of uh, Asian elephants every single year. It's more than poaching, more than any more human elephant conflict. This terrible, awful virus kills them, right? And so we can actually engineer through mRNA vaccines and others, we can actually engineer a cure for that, which we're working on with Dr. Paul Ling and Baylor College of Medicine, as well as Harvard. And in that, not only can we provide a value to the world, we can actually engineer that into our mammoths. So thinking about de-extinction of really about rebuilding extinct species today, we're kind of de-extincting these core genes, engineering enhancements, and then engineering and resilience that can lead from everything to disease resilience to anti-poaching with like tusk length. And so that is where true genetic engineering and synthetic biology come in. So that now that we kind of have our goals, we can start looking at the genomes and we, we, we don't start with the mammoth genome. That's kind of like I like to think of it as like reverse Jurassic Park. They were trying to like fill in ancient dino DNA with frog DNA and a bunch of other weird stuff they pick up along the way, apparently. We think of it exactly opposite. We're like, we know that the closest living relative to a mammoth is an Asian elephant. It's 99.6% the same genetically. It's actually closer to a mammoth than it is than actually Asian elephants are to African elephants. That always kind of weirdly blows people's minds. And then we start with that genome and we start with those cells because one, they're living cells. And two, we know they made an elephant because we took the blood from an elephant. And so from that, then we start saying, what are the, and this is where a lot of the computational biology, comparative genomics and software comes in. What genes really made a mammoth a mammoth? And then how do we engineer them in? And what is the best tools that we could leverage, whether it's 
base and prime or any of these other editing modalities to then, you know, achieve the stable integration or replacement of genes that will then produce, you know, the, the outcomes that we're looking for for de-extinction. So it is a very computational heavy problem. And it's also a very heavy engineering problem. So, okay, there's so many things that I want to circle back on that you said, but one of the things that has definitely stuck with me and probably will resonate with a lot of people is about mRNA vaccines. So, of course, you know, we've just been through a COVID pandemic. We're seeing sort of a rise of cases of COVID again. There's been a lot of controversy about mRNA vaccines in terms of not necessarily the mRNA, but more in terms of how is the pandemic handled, et cetera. We won't get into that. But the idea of engineering mRNA vaccines to almost make viruses extinct is super interesting to me. And obviously, we're talking about from the animal perspective now. So we've never talked about this before. But when you were talking about this, it kind of surfaces for me. And you'll tell me if this is something you guys are thinking about. But I don't think we've ever talked about pigs or porcine viruses before. But it makes me think about xenotransplantation. So we know that there are companies that are working on it. We know that there are more people who need a transplant than get them in the United States. We know that the wait list for organ transplants in the U.S. is twice as long as the number of those that were done in 2023. So if we just look at the numbers, there's over 46,000 transplants that were completed, but there were more than 100,000 people that are still on the waiting list. We know of several companies working on trying to complete xenotransplantation like eugenesis, United Therapeutics. There are others. And just so you know, the stats that I'm kind of quoting here are from the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. But I guess what I'm curious about, one of the challenges that these companies face is that there are certain porcine viruses that would kill a human. And there are other obvious complexities with using an animal organ in a human. But I'm just wondering if there's anything you guys have thought about in the xenotransplantation space. I know the capabilities you have are, are kind of vast and it's really can become a platform. And I think the challenge for you is probably going to be what do you choose to go after and where do you choose to focus your attention? But that's just something I think that's been really a focus point for me, just working in cancer research and working in the hospital and seeing how many people need transplants. So I was just curious if that's something you guys have ever thought about. I would say that part of George's success from a scientific perspective with eugenesis and the work that Lujan did very, very early from the church lab, I think gave a high degree of confidence in the editing, right? So I think that, and I could be wrong, you probably know more about it than me, but eliminating those some of those retroviruses, I think it's either 65 or 69 stable kind of knockouts of those linear repeats has been, is kind of like the record in terms of like a multicellular organism that has that in there. Between you and I, we have beaten that, but we'll talk about that in some future state when we tell the world about, show some stuff to the world. But what's interesting is the confidence from doing that editing work at the precision that it's had, minimizing the off-target effects and having you know, stable additional generations of pigs and offspring from those pigs that are in some, or which are, as you know, in preclinical trials. I think that gave him a lot of confidence in moving to non-model species like elephants. There's different challenges. I don't know what it is in pigs. I know it's in mice and humans, it's about one, but you know, P53, for example, 
in your cancer world. It's not my world, but I've, I've had to learn a little bit about it just because elephants have about seven times the expression than we do. And both elephants and blue whales, elephants are, you know, while they're a non-model species, they're easier to study than blue whales, at least from a genetics perspective. And what's interesting is that we actually, for us to be successful in our editing elephant cells, we actually had to figure out how to regulate P53 because any editing and changing of the cell can and does sometimes look like cancer, right? Or, or an anomaly. And when you have an overexpression of P53, especially in elephants, it just kills the cell. And so when you look at elephants per body weight and age and size that they grow, they get cancer a fraction of what we and mice and others get in many of us, including many people in the research community, including us, think that P53 is fundamentally core to that. And so as it relates back to the work that like for xenotransplantation and mRNA vaccines, I think the biggest thing that Colossal has that's ahead of us isn't really de-extinction or long-term exudero development type devices with artificial limbs. I think the hardest thing to focus, I think you nailed it. We see companies like Moderna and others that rose to the economic values that they have at the right time by building these messenger RNA systems to essentially evoke these immune responses. And then we see companies like eGenesis and others that are working to make it more compatible for xenotransplantation. For us, I think that there are certain categories that I'm very interested in. Like I am beyond fascinated with P53 in the work that we're learning in non-model organisms. I think for Colossal, our biggest contribution to human healthcare and to scientific research is we're working on a lot of non-model species, right? Like Pfizer does not go work in elephants. They buy what's coming out of lab, that's mostly done in you know, everything from non-human primates to mice and pigs. But there's not like, oh, we're the elephant research company that Pfizer buys from. And at the same time, like here's something that's super weird. One of our projects, the thylacine, is a marsupial. And its closest living relative is the fat-tailed dunart. And the editing that we can do on the fat-tailed dunart's insane. These marsupial cells hold up so much better than mice cells. And it's not something that's widely known to science because most people work in model organisms. So I think for us, probably in the short term, we have to stay really, really focused on the de-extinction, not chase some of these bigger problems. But I also think we can contribute massively to science around publishing and sharing data around non-model species that could give other scientists lots of clues that could have applications to you know everything from cancer research to xenotransplantation. Yeah, so we quoted like some of the most edits that have been done. I think this was at eGenesis. So it's essentially when you're making these changes, you do to make the pig more compatible to the human body. I think it was at eGenesis, but either way, it was definitely involved with George Church. And I think I saw it quoted that they had done 42 simultaneous modifications. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, like around 13. I thought they put out a paper that was 65, but I could be wrong. But I know I know 42 for sure was in there. Yeah, it's just an incredible feat. And the idea of being able to basically not worry about organ transplantation if we could use animals in obviously a very humane way, I think that's really game-changing. So I know that's not totally your focus, but <laughs> just something that I think changes the world in some ways. But there's also incredible things that can be done, even from an environmental perspective, from sort of what you guys are trying to accomplish, which is pretty amazing. 
So we talked about when you switch these genes and you put the woolly mammoth genes into the Asian elephant genes, the appearance will change and they'll be able to withstand colder temperatures. But I think something that's worth mentioning is that when you do this, also something that could happen is it could also help to prevent the Arctic tundra from potentially releasing massive amounts of greenhouse gas. And this could be really important for global warming. Yeah. So one, all of the projects that we're working on, we look to have for the ecological impact, right? And they vary. Like with the dodo specifically, putting the dodos back in Mauritius will not change the carbon footprint. But what's interesting about like that specific project before we get to Mammoth is that we're working with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, which is effectively their Fish and Wildlife and in the Mauritian government, because we're working to remove the invasive species that actually led to the dodo, which, which not only benefits us being able to rewild the dodo, but allows us to increase the endemic species that already live there without having oppression from invasive species. And so whether it's that or it's tropic downgrading in Australia, after they killed off the thylacine, there hasn't been an apex predator that's actually replaced it. And so many of the kind of these mezzanine and these like these middle level marsupials are overpopulated and they're actually even spreading disease like the facial tumor disease in the Tasmanian devils, right? If thylacine still existed, predators typically eat the sick and the weak and the young. They don't go after the hardest. You know, they, there's a massive ex- expenditure of energy to go kill a prey. And so what's interesting is that, you know, all of these projects, including the mammoth, when we look to rewild the mammoth and help add more biodiversity back into the Arctic tundra, we generally see that a more balanced ecosystem with more animals increases the carbon nitrogen cycle, and it also suppresses carbon. And so what we're seeing and what we're modeling in the tundra is that if you get the right level of density and in there, look, in all these ecosystem and geoengineering projects, there's always feedback. Like George has stronger views on impact than like Lou Vidalin, who's one of our other scientific advisors, who's incredible. But what they both agree on is that a more diverse ecosystem versus the degraded ecosystem there is better for the world and is better for carbon sequestration. What's interesting about specifically mammoths and some of these cold tolerant herding animals is there is research that's been peer reviewed in six or seven different papers that have come out that shows if you get to the right density level of some of these animals, you can help to replenish the Arctic tundra grasslands, which are about six to seven times more efficient than the taiga forest that's there now, as well as you can increase that nitrogen oxygen cycle because you have large herbivores that are moving around defecating and kind of stirring up the right nutrients at the top layer while helping trample the snows in the winter months. So you're getting the Arctic winds that help freeze the permafrost deeper into the summer man. So instead of starting at like negative eight, you're starting at like negative 19 on those soil temperatures that are below that high level topsoil. So there's a lot of really interesting data that's now going into geoengineering and ecosystem modeling from some of the predator research that's come out of Yellowstone with the wolves to the tropic downgrading in Australia, all the way to kind of this Pleistocene rewilding movement of the Arctic. And so we're very focused right now on the science, but even so we're starting all of our conversations right now with indigenous leaders and private landowners and governments for rewilding, kind of assuming that success. I think those plans will take longer than actually making the animals just because you have a lot of stakeholders. But 
all the projects we're working on, we try to spend as much time looking at the different ecological benefits to what we're doing. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, because I know that you guys do a ton with conservation programs. I think you guys also do population genomic studies. I think you guys have involvement with the vertebrate genome project. So maybe you could just talk about some of those projects. And I actually really appreciate how important it is to you that not only are you creating these animals, you know, obviously look at how they benefit society, but then also are figuring out what is the best way to get these animals just recalibrated within society not just letting them into the wild, but sort of making an important plan in place. And also you have strong concern for other animals and how they'll interact together. Yeah, I think that people love to talk about the de-extinction and that is our focus. But we do a lot in conservation, to your point, that people don't talk as much about. You know, we did hit on briefly kind of our EEHV research. And I do think that hopefully by the end of this year, we will have that. uh, There are several different strains of EEHV as any virus, but the main killer of elephants, we hope to have some tested results on mice and then look to evoke an immune response in susceptible elephants, hopefully by the end of this year, which is when we talk to Pauling and some of our other collaborators, they're saying that our involvement, both from a capital perspective and our technologies and team has shortened that by a decade. And so getting that into the field sooner rather than later for elephants would be huge. Another project that I'm super excited about is we are the genetic rescue partner for the northern white rhino. And so thinking about conservation in its current form, I'd say that that the northern white rhino before us is arguably one of the most prestigious, but also one of the hardest projects on the planet from a conservation perspective. So instead of just conserving the land, Dr. Thomas Hildebrand and Biorescue and Kenya Wildlife Services are all working together to look at the two last northern white rhino that are both female and looking to harvest egg cells and then leverage frozen sperm to create embryos and then look at whether that's surrogacy in a northern or in a southern white or another uh, rhino species or subspecies to create more northern white rhinos. While I believe they will be successful in those efforts, you're still looking at creating a very small founder population with not a lot of genetic diversity. But what's interesting is that from zoos and from frozen zoos and from biobanking and even museum samples, there's actually a reasonable amount of northern white rhino DNA and tissues all around the world. And so what we are doing with them is while we're helping with some of the assisted reproductive technologies for the IVF work and the embryology work, we're also working to do a population genomic study. So get all those samples, sequence it very similar to our ancient DNA work, understand what was the population genomics as the species went to bottleneck and then eventual functional extinction, and then looked at how we can engineer future embryos with the genetic diversity that we learn from doing all of the sampling work. I think it's super cool because like, how does a rhino tooth and horn in a museum in Berlin help make the northern white rhinos not just come back to from the brink of extinction, but how does it you know, add to genetic diversity so that you can create interbreedable herds and get to self-sustainment from both a numbers and a genetic uh, bottleneck perspective? I think that's super fascinating. And that is a one-to-one correlation to what we're doing in our de-extinction efforts, but most people don't ever talk about the genetic rescue side of our business that we're trying to push. Glad to highlight that then. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, because not enough people will People will just say, but what about the mammoth? And it's like, 
Well, we will talk all day about mammoths, but we do also want to talk about genetic rescue. Well, yeah. I mean, when I met you, I thought that was something you were just so passionate about. So that really stuck with me. And just reading more about the company and some of the studies that you guys are doing, also being that my background was in data and public health, it stood out for me. So I think it's amazing what you guys are doing there. What most people probably think is that you're a Jurassic Park company because we hear that a lot. But I think that's probably because one of your investors, Thomas Tull, is the executive producer of Jurassic Park. So I'd love to just hear about how you guys met. And I don't know if you can share any details about anything you guys are thinking about doing from like a media perspective, because I know we talked a little bit about you had a gaming background. And so I'd just be curious if you can share anything about that and the interaction with Thomas and how you became known as maybe the one that's going to resurrect the dinosaur. (laughs) Yeah, so we are focused on dinosaurs. Believe it or not, we have heard the Jurassic Park uh, reference a time or two, (laughs) but you can't get a dinosaur. I mean, the most you can get from like demineralization, not that I've looked. Kenneth Lacavara, who's arguably the top paleontologist in the world who discovered the top five biggest dinosaurs, including Dreadnoughtus, the largest one that was featured in the latest Jurassic World film, is on our advisory board and a fellow Explorers Club member with me. And, you know, he has been successful at demineralizing bones and getting fractions of amino acids, but not proteins, not large, even small strands. So also amber is very, very porous. So that doesn't work. Once again, these are not things I've looked into. I'm just giving you factual, interesting data points. But yeah, so we are not working on dinosaurs and it is impossible to de-extinct a dinosaur. With that said, we have an incredible list of investors, including USIT, Thomas Toll, Jim Breyer, Eric Anderson, and many others. What drew us to those folks is their long-term focus. While Thomas did create legendary pictures, his background is actually in physics. And Thomas is more about quantum than anyone I've ever met, minus, you know, Will at MIT. Like, it's just incredible, his knowledge. And he actually built legendary leveraging data and software to pick which movies to make. So it's actually a technology company that's kind of like wrapped as a studio. So I always find it very, very fascinating. So looking for folks that can like look at the convergence of media and technology, as you know, probably Jim Breyer, legendary technology investor, but was also, you know, on the board of like Marvel. And so thinking about entertainment and education, we were very thoughtful about who we went to to bring into this deal, right? But we also have people like Bob Nelson, who I'm sure you know. Like Bob is incredible. Bob's like the number one biotech investor of all time, I think, in my mind. I you can ask me that on the ARC podcast. <laughs> I'm just saying I love Bob Nelson. I, I think, Allie, you, everyone loves Bob. You can't take it away. Bob's crazy and amazing. And so we, we really did try to strike the balance of some of these incredible visionaries. You know, you and Kathy, we talked to the top people in the world, right? And so I, I think that that community has been very, very helpful. And as it relates to the non-investment, but consumer side, you know, we've garnered over 80 billion media impressions. Like people love what we're doing. We have moms that like send us like in the mail, we literally get these and we don't like advertise our websites or our locations or whatever, but we'll get packages where it's like a hand-drawn picture from a kid about with picture of mammoth saying, when will I get to see a mammoth, right? And so we get these like incredible stories from parents predominantly as well as kind of the public at large that they're just hungry for science and conservation and new ways to combat climate change and loss of biodiversity 
And we get people that are saying, thank you for doing this. Our kid isn't on TikTok watching celebrity videos. They're actually asking us about de-extinction and we're having to go research it so we can talk to them about it because of something that they saw from you. And so we have signed a partnership with an Oscar awarding documentarian that we haven't announced yet. We are chronicling all of the work. We think that also goes back to our ethos of being transparent. And there's nothing more transparent than letting cameras in. I promise you that <laughs> that is invasive species for me is the cameras here. You know, so we are working on educational content. We just brought on a chief consumer and, and marketing officer, Emily Castell, who did work at Legendary as well, to help us start thinking about on the media and consumer side, how do we build children's educational content? How do we put more content out there for people that are hungry for it? So the consumer side of the business is starting to come together and we aren't focusing on monetizing right now. We're really just focusing on the science and the educational aspects, but hopefully long-term we'll have educational content that people find value in. I'm curious also from like a regulatory perspective, when I think about gene editing, obviously the first gene editing therapy ever was approved in December for Kashjavi. It was approved for sickle cell anemia and then for beta thalassemia. And now it's approved in several places in the US, the UK, the EU, and Saudi Arabia. So that was a complex process. It's a complex therapy. It's very new to think about editing your genes to edit out disease and to think of curative therapies using CRISPR. But I'm just wondering, the regulatory landscape was challenging and it took a long time for the FDA to get comfortable. And we're even seeing with CAR-T therapy, right, that the FDA has gone back and put a probe into uh, autologous CAR-T therapy and the possibility of secondary malignancies from it. So I'm just curious, what has it been like to think about regulatory submissions, conditions? How has that maybe either hurt or made timelines a little longer? What's your experience been with that? Yeah, so we're definitely in a unique category, right? Because like, Mammoths aren't going to go through like phase one clinical trials. And we're also not from a like USDA perspective going to go market them for consumption. We are very transparent that several states have invested in Colossal like North Dakota and others. We also work with state and governments as well as indigenous people groups. We are also uh, in QTEL. You know, we're very transparent about this. They are an investor in Colossal. So we're working very closely with them. In the IC, we also work very closely with DOD, just given my background in defense. And, you know, like Alta Charo came from, our lead bioethicist came from FDA. And so for us, we try to be really transparent. I think that it's not 100% clear, but for us, given that we're not taking these animals into humans and we're not like putting mammoth DNA in humans and we're not going to market them for consumption, I think that there'll be other organizations that we work, we work very closely with Fish and Wildlife. You know, at some point, as we look to rewilding and understanding ecological impact and benefit, we'll work with the EPA. I really see Colossal not probably having to go insanely down the path with one regulatory agency, but collaborating with all of them. And, and that's what we're currently doing. We try to keep everyone informed. We try to be really transparent. And we try to also get directional feedback. And I think at different stages of the company, like as we get to animals, we'll have different regulatory collaborations. But I think it'll be just that, right? Like we're not going to be putting the public safety at risk and we're not going to put anything into humans. And, and so I think that we'll probably have a different threshold of effort that has to go into that. But I think it's one that as long as we maintain high levels of transparency and high levels of 
collaboration, then I hope we'll have not too strong of headwinds. Yeah, there's always a regulatory challenge. It's just dependent on what it is for sure. But we've talked a lot about resurrecting animal species, and I know your time is precious, so don't want to take too much of it. But maybe just a final question. Would love to know, on your website, it talks about sustainable agriculture. I was just curious if you had any plans or thinking about working on resurrecting plant species. Yeah, so resurrecting plant species is super hard. It's harder than what we're working on, right? Because like the best DNA we get comes from teeth and comes from like a petrous bone, which is like this bone inside your inner ear, right? That doesn't exist in plants. So the preservation of plant species that comes from the same level of age of some of the work that we're doing with like a Pleistocene species, for example, that's a hard ask to see if we can ever find that DNA. So the DNA is more scarce. I think what's more realistic is looking at, people love to talk about like the new genetically modified organisms and they love to talk about genetic engineering, but we've been doing this for a long time. We've just done it really inefficiently. We have crossbred dogs to the point that there's some species of dogs that barely can breathe on their own because we were looking to breed specific phenotypes, right? We've done the same things with wheat and other things, right? So I do think that looking at kind of ancestral state reconstructions is probably a probable path for the de-extinction of key plant species. I think also looking at like the crossbreeding lines and kind of like reverse and backbreeding, if you will, is another way to get to at least a different reference level genome that you could then build from. Colossal is not working on plants. We may or may not have a sister company at some point that works on plants, but we are not working on plants at Colossal at this time. Got it. And just to end on a light note, who would you say is your favorite sort of inventor or someone you just look up to, an entrepreneur? Well, I mean, is George Church excluded? Because I just think he is. George, or you can even say Bob Nelson. I'm not not saying George, just because, you know, I have to say George, but I think that I've met a lot of people, right? And I'm not saying George just because he's a co-founder and because I love him dearly. And if you know George, which you do, George is actually funnier than he is smart. And he's pretty damn smart. But what I love about George is that he doesn't believe in the word impossible. He just doesn't. He thinks there's things that are highly improbable. But we as humanity in the short existence, especially in the short existence we've had modern technologies, have achieved some pretty big things that people thought were impossible. Not just the achievements that George has achieved and not just our friendship and partnership with Colossal, but just the fact that people like George Church and Elon Musk and others, they don't think in the world of impossible. They just don't. And I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, Ben. Awesome. Thanks, Allie. Thanks. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.